to the real voices of the game i'm dave d'agostino joined here by our host star of this show the hall of famer jim cott this is episode 455 in the network want to thank a couple people before we we uh, bring jim on we got a packed show for you today this is the front end of a friday doubleheader. Uh, aj ramos will be the back end today later on this afternoon uh, but i uh, want to thank our buddies in the bat industry jaw bats rbg at checkout We'll get you a percentage off their brand new Maple Bats, newest certified bat in Major League Baseball. My son Tanner's using his M110 model. Lefty and righty loves the distribution. Our very own Jeff Fry's got a C271. Hit a pull side double. Fantasy camp size. He joked about it. It's got to work. Those bats. So RBG at checkout will get you a discount on any of their merchandise for that matter. Also, be on the lookout for two new partners. Bo Nets, been around in the industry for ages. A lot of people try to replicate what they're doing, but... Uh, they do a great job, not just with with different types of netting and and materials you need to run a great baseball practice. They do multiple sports, also do their own baseballs, which I love. They keep their round very well. We pound the heck out of those things in BP, and they never lose their shape. And then uh, to our, our buddies over at Kinetic Arm, uh, we'll be doing some projects with, with Jason Collarn and his company, uh, some monthly shows for our audience, some clinics, and then an end-of-the-year extravaganza in December for all our fans and listeners there to, to do a one big clinic and try to right the ship here a little bit at a time with baseball. Thank you to millions. Our merchandise dropped earlier this week. Our experiences will be up next week where you can hire our hosts to do things as simple as a, a birthday message to a advice on how to play a certain portion of the game. You can bring them in as speakers virtually or in person. You can have them run a clinic, whatever they're willing to offer and you're willing to to pay for it's definitely worth it we got some great guys in this network and with that jim welcome back to your show um feeling good you said feeling one day at a time here and uh yeah uh i got a brand new hip and uh have a little issue with the uh, dressings that they use but i'm over that and uh walking a little bit more each day so uh yeah i'm on the right road i appreciate that and talking about the bat models maybe uh Maybe Jaws will make me up an OR-161. That was a Frank Robinson. I think I hit a lot of my home runs with the R-161. I think Rod Carew had a C-267, which was very much like it. It had a fairly thick handle and a big barrel. Yeah. Yeah. That's how I use it. Mine was a case. I, I do, right along with what you mentioned with the sponsors, I, I want to, uh, or the other show participants, I want to get one of those kinetic arms. Yeah, I already put your request in. I, I know as you, you kind of looked on your text back, you, you put your spin rate on there and whatnot in your miles per hour. But I did tell him, I said, he's getting a new hip, so I don't know if this is going to be an announcement for a comeback because all you got to throw is four. Well, I just want to see how it works. I, I got a couple more emails from our friend Jim Colonel today, and I said, Jim, you're beating your head against a wall. You know, they, they don't, they being MLB, they, they're not going to change. Uh, 
they don't know what they're doing. And so they don't want to ask us for fear that we might be right. Yeah. They're going to continue to, you know, to be the answer to insanity. They're going to make the same mistake over and over again with their emotions and with their uh, emphasis on velo, no matter what it takes. And that's what they'll do. So our, our best hope is to get something like, say, the kinetic arm, and maybe we can influence the next generation. I, I actually, our friend Vinny Perez, physical therapist, he had one of his clients said, I would actually rather throw a 94-mile-an-hour ball than a 92-mile-an-hour strike. How dumb is that? Yeah. Then I noticed today, I think it's the Red Sox in camp, they have a, a, a wall with a strike zone outlined in red uh, paint. And then it has little X's outside the strike zone. And, it, and then the message said, we don't care if you throw a 94-mile-an-hour ball. We want to see you throw a strike. <laughs> yeah. So I've seen, I've maybe, seen maybe eventually it will swing back to that. But I haven't seen it so far. And, uh, you know, the camps that I'll be at, I, I'm only going to be at Twins Camp in about a month for a day. But in recent years, camps that I've been at, there is no uh, concentrated effort on uh, finding a velocity where you can throw strikes. It's just throw as hard as you can, and maybe eventually one of them will find the strike zone. That's uh, that, that comment by the patient of Vinny Perez is concerning. The signs you mentioned, I've seen those up now. They're posting them on social media. I don't know if it's one of those little... Uh, propaganda schemes to, to keep people's mind at ease, but it looks like a lot more clubs have similar signs up where we don't care how fast you throw strikes or throw 94 mile an hour. Or, or, I'm sure you say balls. We don't want to see 94 mile an hour balls. So hopefully it catches on and stops being a slogan and a catchphrase and starts becoming a reality. Yeah, I hope so. So, well, what you, you had texted me earlier in the week. I know we're a little removed from the, the Super Bowl, but you were intrigued by some of the analytics being implemented in the Super Bowl. We talked about the Lions, I think, a couple of weeks before. Yeah. I did a Facebook post yesterday, and I had a good chat with my friend Bill Parcells uh, during the week, not specifically uh, you know, about that, but about really the invasion of analytics into the game. And so what prompted me this week to reach out, and I don't know Steve Wilkes from anybody, but Steve was the defensive coordinator of the 49ers, and they let him go. Well, now, come overtime, here's Kyle Shanahan, who is, I assume, a well-respected NFL coach. He's been to the Super Bowl. And he is adamant about his analytics people said, it's going to be a field goal game. This is the best thing to do. Uh, go ahead and receive the kickoff. Now, my question is, because they lost the game, are the analytical people as accountable as Steve Wilkes had to be? And will they lose their job? Because I think if you ask any Hall of Fame coach, like Coach said to me and Parcells, and I say the same thing in baseball, I don't care what the analytics say, look at the scoreboard and the opposition. So evidently, the 49er analytics did not have Patrick Holmes in their database. Yeah, he's he's a new that's a whole different animal when you're looking at that. And you know, and then it happened to, to Dan Campbell, who, you know, the percentages said go for it. Well, yeah, maybe uh, it's all averages, maybe against a weak team the second week of the NFL season, 
those percentages get skewed. And it's just sickening because it's invading every sport. Uh, you know, the Twins have a, a building. It looks like an IBM office building on a miniature scale. And it's going to be their entire analytics department. So when are we going to get to letting the players and the coaches take ownership of their craft? And there's not there's nobody that knows better what's going on during the game than some of your leaders and your captains that are on the field. Or like in my case, if I had a veteran catcher like Earl Batty, you know, we don't need somebody running in to say this is what you ought to throw because we're in the flow of the game. If we don't know that, it's our fault. Well, it's, I think in this world right now, these, these decisions are being data-driven as opposed to data-informed. And are, do you feel like we're stripping thinking away from the, the modern-day athlete? Yeah, I like that comment you made. And that was from Nomar, right? Yeah. About yeah. being data-informed but not data-driven. That's, that's really – I don't know if that's his original quote, but that's a great one because uh, I want all the information – but then uh, I'm not going to let that information influence uh, my decision if it goes entirely against what my gut tells me. You know, like I remember when I was with the Phillies, a scouting report came around and said, never throw Willie Stargell a fastball. Well, see, I found out later in my career, and I found out from guys like Johnny Roseboro, who caught for the Dodgers and then was with was with us in the late uh, 60s, and he got five hits in Fenway Park. <laughs> We're sitting in the clubhouse after the game, and he's kind of grinning. He said, you know, I don't know where they get their information. He said, the older we get, the more difficult it is to catch up with a fastball. And uh, every hit I got tonight was on a breaking ball <laughs> because they think I'm a good fastball hitter. Well, you get older, like in Stargell's case, I wouldn't throw Willie Stargell a, a medium-speed breaking ball. I'm going to throw him a fastball at this stage of his career. Granted, it's got to be well-located, but things like that, uh, I don't know how deep that information goes, whether, they've, whether they have 10 years' worth of data that says, okay, you can't throw Willie Stargell a fastball. I mean, that's where, that's where I have a big problem with these analytics being sort of a one-size-fits-all. And it's up to me as an individual, as Nomar said, to get all the data, but then apply it to what I have going for me and who I'm facing and what the scoreboard says. Yeah. Yeah. That, I love that phrase because there's no fat on it. And I, as you know, I'm a former college basketball coach, so I live life in 30-second timeouts sometimes, right? You only, you only have five words to say it. The, uh, we, he, he, he allowed me permission to use that, and I gave him my next, next five words on it. And, you know, I told him that. You know, that's a difference between information and intelligence. In yeah. between lies the experienced player like yourself who decides what's important and, you know, how, how to apply it. And that's, that's the difference between info and intelligence. Well, I like you know, that. I, I had just diverting a minute. I had an interesting uh, dialogue this past week with my friend Faye Vincent, who was the baseball commissioner back in the late 80s into a few years in the early 90s. And, uh, he really didn't get a fair shake from MLB owners. I mean, here's Faye Vincent, a brilliant businessman, president of uh, Columbia Pictures, uh, executive VP of Coca-Cola, 
And he took over when Bart Giamatti sadly had his uh, heart attack and passed away. And he, you know, he was there during the earthquake uh, crisis. And then the owners basically were trying to break the union and uh, they, they forced him into agreeing to a lockout in 1990. Uh, and then by a vote of lack of confidence, you know, he was banning George Steinbrenner for the game. He did all these things that are right for the game, but, uh, but they didn't please the owners. And so uh, in a few years time, uh, you know, they let him go. They forced him really to resign. I think but people made an interesting uh, comment today. We were taking, talking about the high contracts and the labor negotiations. And I, I just got an, uh, an email back from Derek Falvey of the Twins. So my question was, are players and their agents, when they go for these big contracts, are they asking for some equity in the club? Now, according to Derek, uh, the CBA, which I don't know if that means the player side, but that's that's not allowed. And as Faye pointed out, I mean, Seinfeld owned part of his shows, which made him millions of dollars. Oh, yeah. And a lot of these actors, they got part of the show. So as a player, I'm thinking if I'm in line for a big contract with the Minnesota Twins and I'd like to play there for 10 years, I say, well, look, give me some equity in the club. That's going to give me incentive to show up every day and play every day because the better I do, the better the club is doing, and I might get some capital gains, and it's going to increase my financial ability. So, you know, Faye was saying that he he had pushed that for years, and he just got uh, shut down by it. But I'm surprised that I guess Otani uh, suggested it, but I'm surprised that players today uh, haven't requested that. Yeah. As as crude sometimes as, you know, we, we, we both love Pete Rose, the player and the manager. And um, he actually requested that when he was uh, when he left the Reds and he was entertaining the Phillies and the Orioles and all these different clubs. They were offering him equity in businesses. I think uh, Anheuser-Busch had offered him uh, that that family had offered him ownership. Someone offered him racehorses. But I think he had requested ownership in the club. Now, of course, he didn't get it. But um yeah, he was way ahead of his time. Yeah, I think what Pete did, and I kidded him about it later, because I said it, I would have taken that offer in a, in a heartbeat. So the Pirates, uh, John Galbraith, who owns Darby Dan Farms and has great racehorses, one of them named Roberto after Roberto Clemente, and he evidently had offered Pete some some breeding shares, and I said, man, that would have been right up my alley, and it would have uh, with Pete also, but... Uh, but as far as having equity in the actual ball club, uh, <clears throat> I don't know if that's now illegal. I don't know why it should be. But I think what, what Faye was using was his experience in the uh, in the entertainment industry with Columbia Pictures. Well, Seinfeld, I read an article the other day, ironically, where he still makes $60 million a year on reruns. Who's that? Jerry Seinfeld. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I just thought that would be a natural to own part of the club. It also puts a little uh, onus on the player because you don't want to show up and say, well, you know, my arm's a little sore today. I don't think I play it. It behooves you to, to play as often as you can and play hard and do well because it increases the value of the franchise. Did he, I mean, and I, I'm gathering this and maybe I'm wrong, but I would, the owners I would think would be the ones that would be fighting against that. Yeah, I, I'm sure because they're they're probably saying whoop de doo. We're playing the we're paying these players. 
big money, but they don't have a stake in our club and our, our franchise price is going, you know, higher and higher from, uh, you know, who, uh, one is just, uh, is just being sold. I think I read about, uh, I don't know if it was a baseball franchise, football, anywhere's the, the selling price was about 175 million and now it's up at the two point something billion. Yeah. So, you know, if you were a player and getting uh, getting a piece of that, that would be uh, that'd be a lot of money. Yeah, I, that's a great point. I, I hope somebody pays attention to that and it gets brought to the forefront. To me, that would be priority number one in collective bargaining as a player. That would set you up for life, whether you're a star or you're, uh, you know, and I would I would guess it would have its, you know, you trickle down percentages based on your your time in the bigs and and maybe even production. I would yeah. add part of it, but. It's a great idea for him. Not, um, people forget that the commissioner works for the owners. Um, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, he, he was unceremonious and he pushed away. What, what's his What's his advice for that? Because we just read today, I don't know if you read it, Rob Manford announced mm-hmm. that he's done in 2029. Yeah. Well, when Faye when took over, uh, first of all, from having known him, have lunch with him, talk baseball, he is a passionate baseball guy. You know, like he said, oh, what I missed today is that strong throw from right field, getting the runner at third, and a timely sacrifice bunt. You know, so he, like Giamatti, were, were really baseball souls. Yeah. And I think once Bud took over, it's now bottom line. You know, the, the passion of the game, and that's been pretty evident with all the rules they have to go to change and the, and the way the style of play has changed versus, you know, power and speed and no skill and art that that's kind of changed. But uh, uh, I think in, in Faye's case, he'd certainly like to, to see that come back. But we, we know it's not a reason I contacted him. It was the 34th anniversary of when they had the lockout in 1990, a couple of days ago. Okay. I didn't realize that. that the owners, uh, they were adamant that they could break, the players union and uh, he was trying to convince him you're not and they didn't and then of course subsequently uh when they asked him to resign they tried it again and we had the the damaging work stoppage in 1994 when we had no world series yeah that was awful it was under the ceiling watch yeah that was but awful. Faye, like happy chandler and this is going way back into the 40s who happy Chandler, we should all be happy that he pushed for our pension plan. And he was kind of a, a pro-player commissioner. Let's take care of the players. Well, the owners in those days, and even in the days I played in Minnesota, were, were basically plantation, uh, plantation owners, and, and we were slaves with benefits. You know, I mean, you couldn't go anywhere. You couldn't negotiate a higher salary, things like that. So uh, they, they didn't want anything to do with improving player benefits. And Chandler did, so he didn't last long. And then Faye came under that same, uh, same category. I mean, he, he bumped heads with my good friend Bill White because uh, Joe West uh, slammed Dennis Cook to the ground. Bill wanted to suspend him, and I forget what the technicality was. But, you know, Faye looked at things from a legal standpoint. He was a... Uh, an attorney, an executive, and uh, I, I think he really would have been good for baseball. But I may be in the minority there with a lot of the inside baseball owners and executives because uh, 
he, he was equal equally interested in the the players as well as the owners. Yeah, I would think that would be the <laughs> the desired position of the commissioner to be a neutral party trying to make both sides benefit as opposed to it being slanted toward the owners. Uh, it, yeah. it, it doesn't seem logical. You know, back to the uh, back to the equity issue. Uh, Faye mentioned as an example. Let's take Aaron Judge, who got a huge salary increase, but he paid full taxes on it. And uh, when he gets older, he's going to realize that if he had some equity, and then just claim capital gains, his tax liability would be you know a lot less than what it is right now. Just straight income paying taxes, but. Uh, Evidently, there isn't any agents that feel like they want to push for that. That was my next question is you you would think with guys that are all about money, like a Scott Boris, he would have if it if he could find a way to benefit him, he would have the the juice, I guess, to challenge uh, the uh, the plan of the commissioner when it comes to that. Yeah. Yeah, I had Derek Falvey, who I, you know, I communicate with him because I know he'll get back to me. Sometimes it's tough working all through all the bureaucracy to get to other executive general managers. He's never had an agent ask for it. He did hear that Otani's agent considered it, but maybe immediately they found out, well, that's that's uh, uh, verboten according to the CBA, so they couldn't do it. But uh, yeah, when, when Faye reminded me, he's the one that told me a few years ago because I've had a uh, a group, a couple groups out of Denver, and uh, my friend Frank Castro and I are kind of liaisons for them that would like to buy a franchise. And years ago, they were, I'd say going back five, six years ago, they were starting to explore different franchises and prices. And Faye said, well, now is a good time to get into buy a sports franchise because gambling is going to be legalized very shortly. And of course, in another two years, here we have it. And yeah, so that's another big, uh, you know, video stream for uh, for teams. Just uh, the the uh, the gambling aspect of it. Oh, it's in every. You can bet pitch to pitch now in every yeah. single stadium. And yeah, I just, I'm still waiting. I, I hope it doesn't happen, but I'm still waiting for that first uh, incident where somebody thinks that they can beat the system. And they're going to throw uh, eight balls in a row or something. <laughs> and they're going to get their buddy in Las Vegas. Hey, I'm coming into the game tonight. Yeah. I'm not going to throw any strikes. So just go to the window and, and bet that Johnny Smith will walk so-and-so on four straight pitches. I mean, I guess you could do that. It's it, They've made it very easy to do that. They made yeah. it easy. And we, we hope, you know, the good nature of the game, nobody would. But we're dealing with humans. Oh yeah, well we've we've seen what happens in uh, in other sports in football already. We've seen some incidents of that. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to take you back, if you don't mind. You you you'd mentioned Bill Parcells, and I'm sure he has a lot to to say about the modern game. What what were things that he used in a game, um, statistics wise, analytics wise, even just straight football? What were the, what what was his go to? In games, he he had a couple of things. He he didn't go down a long laundry list, but he, first of all, he wanted field position, so he wanted the best punter he could find. So he wanted field position, and then if he gave up, if his defense gave up a hundred yards rushing, 
he had the statistics that showed your winning percentage goes down to X. Uh, if your special teams have one turnover, your win percentage goes down. If you have two or three, you basically have no chance of winning. So those are, those are some of the things that, uh, you know, that, that he paid attention to, and which is why he was a great defensive coach. Oh, yeah. And he thought. He, he would think within the system. And I would imagine a lot like GPS when we drive or we got the phone number saved in our phone now. We, we, I can remember phone numbers when I was a kid, my best friend's phone numbers, because you had to. You didn't yeah. save your phone. I wonder if – I hope that's not happening to guys, good young coaches like Kyle Shanahan, where so relying on – I watched the game, and again, I'm not a football coach, but Christian McCaffrey to me is the best player in the NFL. They were running all over uh, Kansas City with him. And to come out in the second half after that dominance of the first 12 plays, nine of them were passing plays. And again, I don't know what he saw. I don't know what the analytics told him, but I just kind of, to me, common sense said, just, you know, give the ball to your best player. Yeah, that probably fits in. I mean, I know coach, I don't, I don't get into great details uh, with him about what, I don't want him second guessing coaches or anything like that, but, uh, but he said, yeah, what started to turn things around is when Kansas City began to blitz. And they didn't necessarily uh, sack uh, Brock Purdy, but they made him uncomfortable. They made him move around. And yeah. to what you're saying, maybe that would be where you would be uh, giving it to Christian McCaffrey a few more times. I agree with you, man. This guy is really special. Yeah. And per- Purdy uh... – very much on time. You always talk about rhythm and timing with pitching. He's that way as a quarterback. His rhythm and yeah. timing, he gets the ball out to his progressions. But I agree with you. Kansas City did a great job of just making him a little uncomfortable. And yeah. sometimes that's all it takes to throw him off balance. Well, you, you had you had some great articles in the Boston Globe you said you read. Did you want to touch on those with Peter Abrahams? Well, I just thought Peter had, uh, he had some great uh, baseball info, you know, kind of a – uh, a lead into spring training. And uh, I think we were talking about the uh, the top free free agents, you know, and now why they haven't signed yet. Why are people afraid of Blake Snell? Yeah. And uh, what about Jordan Montgomery? What about uh, uh, Cody Bellinger? Bellinger, yeah. Uh, so – you know, we're getting right close to spring training now. You'd think those things are going to happen. So I wonder if there's something uh, sort of mysterious that we don't know about that teams are staying away from them. It's There's 128 free agents still unsigned Yeah, out there. And guys that you mentioned, those are supposed to be the headliners that dropped after Otani signed. And right. that's long since gone. And I had heard Snell wanted 10 years. Montgomery is probably waiting on Snell. Uh, not sure about Bellinger because he he had his uh, he was on a two year downswing going getting into that barrel dump stuff and he found his way back last year and, yeah. and boy he he would help a lot of teams out tremendous athlete great glove and center net first and who who doesn't like a lefty stick with power and speed right that barrel dump the term you mentioned is that when they all decided to drop the barrel and try to launch yeah it's the launch angle uh, yeah. To me, not only is it bad baseball mechanics, but it's it it goes against what's going on in from the pitching side of it, where pitchers are trying to throw as as hard as they possibly can. Um, why would you develop a swing and miss policy as opposed to 
you know, just put that ball in play, use the velocity against itself. And it's also yeah. dangerous, Jim. Like I, I see young kids doing it and I cringe because yeah. it's a barrel dump. They open up that front shoulder and it exposes their face. And well, back, back before we had hitting coaches in the sixties, we had, we had four coaches, but uh, the only guy that really had a particular title was the pitching coach. And then you had a first base coach and a third base coach. Jim Lemon was our first base coach, but he also would be sort of a a, a hitting guru because he was a veteran, but he wasn't an official hitting coach. And when, when I, I was a decent hitter for a pitcher, so I got to hit with the extra guys before the game. So I got to take a little batting practice almost every day. And uh, a couple things that Lem would always throw out at me, he said, okay, take a short stride, swing the bat like a hammer, not like a broom. And then the other thing, never let the barrel of the bat fall below the flight of the ball. Yeah. Which means you're always, even though the ball's going to go up, you're always starting that swing down and through the ball and then up. But you don't start from the barrel on the ground and think you're going to launch it. So I guess that's what did in Bellinger for a while. It did. It looked like Alex Rodriguez does as good a job of anybody as demonstrating it. and. Uh whatever people's opinion of, of him as, what he, as a player or whatnot, he's got a good baseball mind. I, sure. I, I'm glad he's out there more. But he likened it to a, a Ferris wheel rotation. And there's not a lot of impact zone when you do that. So it's, it's part of why we're seeing what we see with all these strikeouts nowadays. But the guys are moving back into what you're saying with, with a barrel above the hands when you're, yeah. when you're the ball, barrel, barrel above the ball. That's, that's good mechanics. So. Well, you got some great advice there, and that didn't cost you 175 bucks an hour to get it, did it? Like these kids no. have. Oh, guy, I saw another toy on uh, Facebook today. I was going to respond to it. It's just sickening. Some group, I'm not going to mention their name. You got this thing you attach to the bat for a kid, and either softball, baseball, you're going to increase their bats. I mean, there's companies out there that are getting parents and kids to buy these gimmicks to think that they're going to increase their whatever speed and power and earn them a college scholarship. And uh, it's like in golf, when you have all these different toys and say you've spent a thousand dollars on them, take that thousand dollars and go to a, a PGA professional coach and take lessons and learn how to play the game. Yeah. Sort <laughs> of think that all the gimmicks are going to help you buy the game. Looking for the quick fix, everybody. Yeah. Just go out there, put in the hard work. We, we, I well, took that's why I'm, I'm kind of eager to get this uh, kinetic arm because that does make a, a lot of sense to me. Uh, it's I'm probably, and I keep telling Jim Colonel this, you're not going to get a, a lot of former players to even want to take the time to analyze what's going on with pitchers' motions today. But I have always been curious. Uh, even when I played, I mean, I was always tinkering with what can I do better with my motion. And I was I was fortunate because I was not velocity driven. So I was able to pitch for a long time with probably less than ideal mechanics. But I was able to repeat it and I was able to throw strikes with it. But I think to be able to get something like this kinetic arm and sort of train your arm to get in the right Positions. I thought this Juan Leclerc would be 
a good example. And then Jim Colonel sent me the videos of him who already, again, had Tommy John surgery yeah. and showed his arm in the position. That's another thing Peter Abraham pointed out in there. I mean, you believe the Dodgers rotation? Every pitcher, except maybe one or two coming out of the AAA uh, off that roster, they have had at least one and maybe two surgeries. Yeah, they have a stable of about 14 guys and they have a hard time. Yeah. And even Yamamoto now has a contract that if he does require Tommy John surgery, I think that that affects his uh, contract in some way because Otani's had two surgeries. Kershaw, of course, just had one. Uh, <clears throat> I think uh, Bueller's had two. And Dustin May, is it Dustin May? He's had one. Yep. He so has. they got a, uh, and they're not alone. It's hard to find. Uh, a roster that doesn't have, I don't know, 50% of their pitchers have had to have the surgery already. Now, wouldn't that tell you that something's wrong with the way they're training pitchers to throw as youngsters? You would think it would, but it doesn't, and they, they don't change because they're just saying, well, you know, do what you have to do, throw as hard as you can, have a little success, get to arbitration, You'll retire. You may only play five or six years, have a mediocre career, but you've earned fifty million bucks. Yeah. So they, you you can't blame them for chasing that dollar if that's what they want. I mean, I would uh, kind of like the PGA guys now would want to play the tour and and, and chase the legacies of uh, winning the Masters and things like that. And in my case, it would be you know you want to sure you have some individual honors when you're younger, but then you, you want to play in the World Series. You want to. You want to get to the pinnacle. It's those type of things aren't reinforced anymore. Where, you know, if you look back at the money made, and I know we wanted to talk about some some of the youth movement that that people should get to, but think about back when when, when you played, where if you won, you got that nice bonus that meant something to your salary, whether it was a pennant or yeah. you know World Series. Nowadays, that's peanuts for these guys. Um, yeah. They're like you know, even if you went into a competition, like you know, you see these love watching the old home run derbies with Mickey Mantle, Willie Mays. And oh, yeah. Mark, get Scott. <laughs> Mark Scott was a narrator. Oh, those were classic. Yeah. And they'd get a $500 check, if, uh, 1000 if they won, 500 if they right. won. But that was, that was good money. Uh, big um, stuff. You know, the other thing Peter Abraham, uh, Abraham pointed out, uh, and, and I didn't realize, I think it was Peter, it was the article I was reading, I didn't realize how much that baseball now is really relying on they're young stars. The stars like Acuna and Corbin, uh, Rodriguez out in Seattle. Years yeah. ago, like say when I came up, it would be, okay, kid, you're going to start in class D and then you work your way up and you get to AAA. And if you can work your way up in four years and get to the big leagues, that's sort of the period of time that you were expected to play in the minor leagues and learn how to play the game. But now we're finding that they're taking the young, raw talent, putting them in the big leagues because of the, the tools that they have, and then coach them on the job. That's why we see base running is probably at an all-time worst uh, because they haven't played enough games in the minor leagues to, you know, to develop the, the base running skills, which, you know, if you look in the – during my era, I think some of the great base runners were – Guys that didn't have great speed. I mean, they didn't have speed. My friend Tim McCarver, Johnny Bench, Pete Rose, 
they were great base runners because of instincts and getting reads. And uh, so those kind of things are forgotten right now. They just want to take those players with the uh, dynamic tools, power, speed, uh, ability to play defense and bring them right up when they're 20. So all of a sudden the, the age of the uh, regular minor league, uh, major leaguer seems to be going down into the low 20s. Yeah. They, they overvalue, I think, and maybe it's because they're concerned of injury. I don't know, but these kids play so many games now Yeah, near the age of 20 where think back when, when you played or, or when I played, you were seasonal for the most part. And, you know, you didn't have a lot of, I mean, we did have tax in our body, but these kids are repeating the same motion over and over and using a lot of these crazy training messages. I wonder how much of that as they eliminated all the minor league development system. That's part of why they can't run the bases. They got rid of all these baseball guys that are supposed to teach that stuff. Yeah. You know, the, you mentioned that travel ball, and uh, that's that's kind of a – it kind of reminds me of when I went to Nicaragua to play winter baseball, winter ball. So my son, who was just a toddler then and, uh, well, old enough to talk, but and then one day he said, Dad, what's winter ball? I said, well, it's baseball that's played in the winter. So now we have the term thrown around travel ball. Yeah. Well, let's travel ball. Well, this baseball that you travel all over the country and play every day. So uh, coming out of the hospital yesterday, I signed some baseballs for different people. And one, he said, yeah, I got this 10-year-old grandson, and he's playing travel ball. He must play 200 games a year. I did not want to stop and have a discussion with him and scold him. I just didn't, just didn't take the time, but I thought that poor kid. Hit him with your time he's 15, he's not going to want to play baseball or he's going to be too hurt to play baseball. Well, you, you know, you, you, that's a great point. You started out the show. We were talking analytics uh, w- with the NFL. And I can th- correct me if I'm wrong, but thinking was fun when, when, when I was playing, like being out in the field and trying to figure out, OK, where's the angle to bat? Running the bases was fun, you know, thinking through that. And I think with all these analytics these kids aren't being allowed to think. And even at the young levels, this 10-year-old's probably going through that too. You're taking away the fun with that in addition to, you know, I hear I hear it all the time. We were at the cages yesterday with my boys and we played pepper to warm up. Uh, we hit off the tee to warm up, high tee, moved it around. We did a little darts, which kind of front toss to get loose and get their timing down. And and a guy came over and said, you guys are putting in the work. And my son corrected him. He go, this is play. Yeah. Very careful about the, the and they asked, yes, where's all your stuff? And I was like, what do you mean my stuff? And they, he, he came out of his car with PZ, PC, whatever that is, PCP, PC, whatever those pipes are, PVC. Yeah, PCP pipe, right. Oh, he had all these apparatuses, the water jugs, the, and I was like, we, we work, I said, I don't know, maybe I'm a bad dad. I just use bats and balls. That's all we right. do. So now how old are you, how old are your boys now? Tanner is the catcher. Yeah, Tanner's an eighth grader. He's a catcher and, and boy, they grew over this. He's, he's my height now at five. He's almost five ten, um, but he got he got to eat a couple hamburgers. I told him he's about a buck twenty five, and then um, he's eighth grader. And then my older son David, we call him Blue. He's a ninth grader. He's he grew. He's about six two now. Wow. Uh, plays shortstop. Both are switch batters. Um, they don't play baseball all year. We're just starting to kind of get back in the swing of things. A couple days a week hitting. They throw every day. They take ground balls off the brick wall, working on different fielding positions with themselves. They play pepper every day just for, you know, 15 minutes just to kind of keep the hands going. But uh, they also play basketball and, you know, it's, they enjoy it. And, and that's that's part of what I get concerned about as a dad is I know what I went through, but I don't want to impose that on them because, you know, they may be different. 
but they seem sure. to, like to play multiple sports, do multiple things. And it, it means something different to all four of our kids, you know, with, with what they do. So, um, don't know if I got all the answers, but, uh, my big thing that guy asked me yesterday, he goes, what he goes, I, I read your posts on Facebook and I, I listened to the podcast and I said, obviously not close enough. You bring it on all these damn tools with you here. Right. Yeah. So maybe you got to tune in with the right ear instead of the left ear. He goes, but what's this all about? Like, what, what's your motive here with this? And I laughed. I said, I don't have a motive. I said, it's, I'm a dad. I said, I'm, I'm a dad who has, you know, played professional baseball. I coached collegiate baseball and basketball. I have different experiences as you, but this is all about teachable moments, whether it's baseball or not. If, they, if they're not concentrating in baseball, I don't make it about baseball. It's about other things it's going to carry over into. And it's about, a, you know, developing that way. And he's yeah. like, your kids to play for professionally? I said, it's not about me. And I showed him my, my little card because I do, I do plan stuff for the kids. Right at the top of the card is that phrase, it's not about me. I said, I write that in every time I work with my kids or I coach a team because that's the biggest mistake. I said, let me ask you the same question. All these tools for you or for him? And uh, he kind of didn't answer. I said, think about that. I said, don't make me write about you on Facebook tomorrow, though. Yeah. Uh, so let me ask you this. Are you, are you going to feel pressure when it comes time where they'd like to go to college and play baseball or even high school that all of a sudden the coach is going to say, well, you know, unless he practices with me, and with us, a uh, hundred days a year or whatever it is, he won't be on the team. That's that's one of the tough things that a parent has to deal with today. Yeah, it's one thing that they do, and and I tell parents that I'm in a little bit different situation where um, our kids probably won't play high school sports around here. Um, uh, we we do have some high schools that come out and watch them and want them to play. But with all the craziness of high school stuff, um, it just stacks on to the number of things that they're trying to do. Now, if they came to me and said they wanted to, God bless them, I, I would support it. But we don't, uh, we, we don't adhere to that. When We've had coaches come to us and say, well, to play with this elite program, um, you know, they, he's got to be with us exclusively. Uh, you know, and I said, well, for the X amount of days per year. And I said, I understand that. I said, but the only person that has exclusive rights over my child, and even that's debatable, is me. And my so I said, no, it doesn't fit into our philosophy on things. So we actually create, that's how we created that one-on-one -on -one program that James came over and played with last year. Uh -huh. um, we created it for two sport athletes or multi-sport athletes whose families don't want to travel all over the country at a young age, who want their kids taught and coached, who want to take part in that stuff, who want to come to practices and learn and and actually teach. The only thing is they can't coach their kid at practice. They've got to be in different groups. And uh, we want to make the parent the first educator. So situations like you're asking don't happen as much. But I said, anybody's got to use that kind of pressure who gives, who tells you that they know more about what's better for your kid than you do, run away. And uh, yeah. use college. And no, you, you homeschool, you and your wife homeschool your kids. And my, my great nephew, he still calls me Uncle Jim. But if, if I'm able to walk well, I will watch him play in a uh, in a collegiate tournament here in Georgia in a couple of weeks. But uh, August August Mikoff is now uh, the number one player at Michigan State. But when he was a youngster, um, his parents couldn't afford a club membership, so he just with a local Muni in town, Muni course, you know, he learned how to chip and pitch and putt. Didn't oh, wow. play any competitive high school, and then I think. If you went to school, X, X amount of days you showed up or something, you could qualify to play on the school team. But anyway, he he worked his way by playing in just local tournaments around uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan. 
and got a full ride to uh, to Michigan State by. So he, he didn't go all over the country uh, playing in these different tournaments to get exposure. He stayed at home, was educated at home. And uh, I mean, that was kind of the norm when I grew up. But now it's it's the exception. Yeah, we've we've fought against it and not like outwardly. And people ask our opinions, we give it to them. But we've created a group of families. It's about we we work with families with our homeschool stuff informally and, and with our one-on-one group. And now it's it's up over eighty countries and uh, try to educate them on hey you you as a parent your child's best coach they're ever going to have. You're the only one that goes to bed thinking about them every night and wakes up thinking about them. As yeah. much as the coach says they love them. And um, we try to educate them on how to have that confidence to be the first educator of their kid, whether it's sports or otherwise. Um, I, had, I I was scared to heck, Jim, when we started doing it because I, I grew up in public schools and, you know, that's that's how you, you learned. And you, you, But uh, we've enjoyed this experience. And if our kids want to play high school sports and if they run into somebody who gives an ultimatum, you know, we, we think we've made them dummy proof. We'll find out as life goes on. But uh, yeah, strong enough kids to, to communicate and stand up for themselves and decide, hey, I think there's something wrong here, Dad. You need to step in right now and, and, and have that. So, um, but yeah, it's uh, but if they're good enough to play, people ask me, like, boy, will they play professionally? I say, I don't know. I don't know if they want to. I don't know if they're good enough yet. Sometimes popcorn pops, sometimes it doesn't. And yeah. Uh, I said neither one of them have recognized girls yet, so that's that's always a factor when it comes in. So right, yeah. So yeah, I, well, that was one of our good players from over in New Zealand. Um, James has, of course, become. Uh, I think his his two buddies are are pretty good too. Oh, but, Harry and Alex are good players. Yeah. But uh, yeah, Marty Grant, Cooper Grant was his name. Man, he's a talented kid, and I thought he would. He would go on to a junior college and play baseball. But I said, how's Cooper Grant doing? Well, he discovered girls. Yeah, so, I heard that one. Yep. I was uh, asked to have a, a short conversation. And I, you know, it's kind of awkward because you want to keep your place. You're not a relative. I'm not a, you know, not his coach. But uh, I just kind of reminded him, you know, there, there comes a time when they're going to take away your opportunity to play. Yeah. Girls are going to be there. Um at least as far as I know, I look out your door, there's girls everywhere. But uh, right. anyway, that's that's his his family's decision. And I, I did have a short conversation with, with Cooper, but what a tremendous talent. And it's his yeah. thing. It's his talent, right? It's his his to decide upon. But uh, no, I, uh, yeah, you, you, you had uh, you, you mentioned the young players coming up the line. I mean, it's I guess it used to be the like those were the exceptions to the rule, right? Those are the truly exceptional guys that came up young. Um, like yourself, you were up young, correct? I was up young, but I, I, you know, I was not ready. I got called up really out of necessity by, by Washington. They just, they didn't have any left-hand pitching. And, and I got called up in 59, uh, you know, got a few starts in early 60, but it was pretty apparent. I was, I was in over my head and I went back to the minor leagues for a couple of months and, and then got back. But yeah, I got called up when I was, 20. Um, but I think the kids today and, uh, not to encourage travel ball, but I think the instruction that say people like yourself have to offer, uh, whether it's in golf or baseball or any other sport, uh, I think now that, uh, an athlete at 20 would be probably a lot more developed skill wise than I was at 20 because I didn't play as many games, 
there, there's a, there's a happy medium there. I mean, we just played six games in our college season. Well, you might like to play a few more than that, but you don't want to play 65 games, maybe to play 30 games or something that, you know, you can keep it seasonal and keep your interest in it. I agree. I, I agree totally. But the, the part that you had, now you went through, you went up there, you had the upbringing, the background in coaching, you used your brain. Um, so those experiences you had, even though you said you weren't ready, you had, you had the, uh, I guess the education, whether it was formal or through your parents, to know how to deal with those mistakes. I think the, the one thing that, that uh, helped me, and I've spoken to groups that I say the same thing, when, when I went off in 1957 to start my career, my record that year was five and six. And the manager said, kid, if you come up with a fastball, you got a chance. So you come out of high school and college, never lost a game in college, lost one in high school. Uh, couldn't black your eye from 60 feet. But, you know, I, I, I learned a little of the skills of what it took to pitch. So when I got back, my dad said, well, what did you think of that first year? I said, you know, I had a couple of dominant games and I had a couple of games where I got beat up, which when you come out of high school and college as a, as a so-called star, you're not used to losing. You know, everything, you're, you're winning all the time. So now how are you going to handle this? You're losing. So I said, but the thing I take from it, uh, a little country boy from Zeeland, Michigan, but I'm playing against some of the guys from bigger cities, and I'm wondering, am I going to be over my head? Are these guys going to be so much better than I am? So but what I told my dad is I felt comfortable that I can compete with the competition that was there. I could compete with these guys. I didn't do well. So every year that I advanced, and I would tell young young golfers that would ask me about playing the tour. I said, you, you just need to be comfortable uh, in an uncomfortable situation and, and believe that you can, you're equally good. It's happening in golf now because we see these young phenoms coming up. They're finding out, well, this guy did this in college. I can do it too. So I think that's really what helped me is I never felt uh, overwhelmed by the competition. These, these young guys, I guess, nowadays, they see it earlier because of the, the, the travel situations. They're running into each other at these elite events since the time they're probably 10, 11 years old. So maybe that, that filter is gone. Um, but with it, I think what you mentioned earlier, and we, we can wrap in a bit, but uh, is the because they're being sped up so quickly, they're, they're really lacking in the fundamentals, whether it's uh, makeup or uh, skills. Like we talk, base running, bunting, the overall nuance is the game that, that Faye Vincent loves and miss so much. Yeah, I, I think we, uh, you know, there wasn't a sense of urgency that, you know, I got to do this. I want to I wanna get to the big leagues uh, right away. You know, I remember using the example of Todd Van Poppel years ago. You remember that name? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, righty yeah. pitcher at Cardinals yeah. a little yeah, and he was one of Scott Boris's clients, and uh, yeah, I, I likened it to when my dad, uh, I took $4,000 and went to the minor leagues. If, if I had gotten more than that, which the White Sox were willing to pay, I would then have to sit on the bench for two years in the major leagues, and a lot of guys never bounce back from that. So Van Poppel, I think Scott Boris in his early days as an agent, he was adamant about Todd Van Poppel having a spot on the major league roster. 
So they rushed him up there in about less than two years time. And he found out he wasn't ready. Yeah. And he never really bounced back from that to become, as they were saying at the time, the next Nolan Ryan. So in, in my minor league days, there wasn't that sense of urgency. Well, I got to win today's game because, you know, I got to win that. I got to strike out 12 today. I got to make an impression. You were just there. And it was a gradual learning, growing process that was either going to take you to the big leagues or if you found out you weren't good enough, then you uh, you go find something else to do. Yeah. Well, it's interesting Boris would push that because that's, as people know in the agent world, they do make a percentage off of the signing bonus, but they can't touch a dime of the money until the kid makes it to the major. So that's <laughs> selfish benefit on his part that probably yeah. Van Poppel's trajectory. But yeah, I do remember that. But uh, well, how do you want to leave the audience today? What do you want to close? Well, we're going to, you know, pitchers and catchers report. That's an exciting time. It's going to be interesting to see. Uh, for me, of course, with the pitchers, to look at the injury factors in uh, every manager. I, I saw the quotes today from Aaron Boone about, you know, the rotation that they have. And, and uh, other, than, other than Garrett Cole, they all have some kind of physical issues that they've overcome in the past. So uh, who's going to be able to get through spring training healthy and then into the season? But it's kind of always an exciting time. Uh, in spring training to see that unknown talent that all of a sudden comes to the front and say, man, who is this guy? Where'd he come from? Well, that's Kirby Puckett, man. He's, you know, and so that's the fun of spring training. And it's, of course, it's a great time for the fans because they have, uh, when I go to Fort Myers, for example, I don't have anything to do with the, with the operation of the game on the field. I stay as far away from them as I can. And I sit on the picnic tables and sign autographs and talk baseball with the fans. So that's that's what I enjoy because I see there is there is still a lot of fans out there that love the game of baseball. Yeah. Are you looking forward to seeing any any of the young talent in Minnesota when you're there? Well, I'll probably just see the ones that, you know, Joe Ryan, Pablo Lopez, I know. Um, I don't think they have any any new uh you know, minor league pitchers that I know about yet, and I'll only be there for a day. Yeah, I remember last year when I was there and I saw Paul Molitor and we mentioned, I think you'll hear of him this year. Uh, man, this last, I want to say Brooks James, Brooks, but it starts with Brooks. He's going to be an infielder that uh, uh, that will surface, I think, with the Twins this year. And I'm sure every organization has a player like that that we haven't heard of yet that all of a sudden will, will come on the scene. The Red Sox made that trade for, uh, for sale and they uh, – they picked up the infielder Grissom, minor league uh, player with the with the Braves, and he could be that guy with the Red Sox. So that's the fun about spring training is see these guys uh, that you haven't heard of develop. Yeah, are you hopeful that the game will turn back, or you think we're so far? No, I'm 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 hopeful. I think I've, I've reached a point where at my age. Uh, I enjoy different phases of the game. Like I spoke to the Alabama baseball coaches, uh, I think it was last week. Yep. And uh, I, I enjoy reminiscing. I, I enjoy the dialogue with Faye Vincent or Bill Parcells. I enjoy that part of the game. I I really try not to get too annoyed with uh, how analytics has taken over the game because as, as Coach Parcells told me the other day, they got their foot in the door. 
and, and they're not moving because they'll make more money here than they will in the Silicon Valley. Yeah. Uh, because teams are just clamoring for it. Yeah. And if that's the way they want to play the game and operate it, then, uh, you know, I'll sit back and read the box scores and, uh, you know, pull for the, you pull for the result and, and the individual players that I like, uh, you know, to see do well. But I'm not as invested in the day-to-day uh, game as I was. It's hard to be. Were you the one that told me that the old box scores used to have just runs and outs in it? Yeah, it would be at-bats, runs, hits. Hits. <laughs> and then, like Pete Rose said, uh, you know, he would kill Larry Boa all the time. You know, he because uh, Boa could So Pete would come to the park and he'd say, uh, I didn't see your name in the paper today with your batting average. He said, see, I see mine every day because they published the top 10. you got to wait till Sunday to see yours. That's when they do the remember, time. you might be too young for that, but years ago, every day they would have the top 10 hitters in each league, top home run hitters, RBIs. But then on the weekend, there would be one full page of every player and his average, and that's where the term the Mendoza line came from. Because the last guy listed down there at the bottom of all these couple hundred hitters was Mario Mendoza. And so Pete would always say, yeah, I, I can see my average every day. You guys got to wait till the weekend. Yeah. No, I do. Yeah, the Schenectady Gazette every Sunday open it up, and I'd always look through each guy. I yeah. spent hours going through that uh, with the averages, always looking for Bucky Dent. Bucky Dent was one of my favorites growing up. Because of the eye black, and who doesn't like a shortstop for the Yanks? Yeah, well, I was I was fortunate. I played with Bucky two different places. You know, he was our rookie of the year on our team in Chicago in the seventies, and then we became teammates briefly with the Yankees in the uh, in seventy nine and eighty. So, uh, yeah, Bucky got a lot out of his talent. Oh, yeah. He was at the two fifty. Now back then, he'd be at the bottom twenty percent. Today, at two fifty, yeah. be top thirty percent. Right. You have to look so low, but. Uh, well, great show today. I'm glad you're doing better. You sound good, um, and you'll be back on back on your feet. You don't have much to time to get ready for spring training, though, to be down there meeting and greeting the fans. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna go outside from here and uh, see how far I can walk around the neighborhood. Yeah, and now well, that I have you know you have these watches on that you, I think yesterday in the hospital I went 650 steps or something like that. So I just increase that every day. Yeah, that's the way to do it. And so you got to promise me, though, when you go to spring training, I know you want to stay away from the field much, but you got to take a look and see if the Twins have those signs as well. Yeah. It's to the, the miles per hour. Uh, we'd rather see you throw it. You know, we don't want to see 94-mile-an-hour balls. So I'll, I'll look at stuff like that, but I'll look from a distance. I won't be, I won't be intruding. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you, if you can sneak over and always there, take a little snapshot, send it to me by cell phone. I'd love to. Okay. See yeah, that. that's a good idea. I'll do that. I'll see if I see some things there that that are novel ideas that they've come up from, uh, yep. come up with, and do Hopefully that. So. And um, we are uh, in the in the process too. I, I just put a note to uh, Jaw Bats to see if they can they can come up with your R one six one model, right? That's yeah. One. So I put that to them. And kinetic arm, I sent your height, weight. I kept your spin rate between you and I. Yeah. Uh, and uh, see if they can't outfit you for a lefty one. But Tanner's using it as a catcher. He loves it. He said it reinforces if you throw the right way. This was his message to me. If you throw the right way, all it does is just remind you subtly. If you don't huh. throw properly, you'll feel that um, you'll feel that positive resistance to bring you back to to a better form. So we're still work tinkering with it. 
Jason uh, is a collar and tremendous guy. We're going to have him on the show again next week with one of our shows, and I'll have to introduce you to him. Um, yeah. Science background, playing background is all about the right thing. So, uh, yeah, it's, it sounds like a very good uh, device. They've tried things like that in golf, you know, to put, put your hands and everything in the right position. So uh, this is the first one I've heard of in, uh, in pitching. So it'd be, uh, be interesting to see it. He said he had to ship out. I can't remember the number of boxes, but I was alarmed at midseason to about, uh, I think it was a dozen MLB teams. So it's caught on in Major League Baseball now where people are using it. But he says he believes they're using it for the rehab portion where he believes it should be beforehand. Kids should be using it. Well, I'll look out for that too in uh, in Fort Myers. See if we can't get you one before down. You can sign autographs with one of those on. Right. Well, maybe I'll pitch a little batting practice with it on or something. Put your jaw bat in hand and have that and you'll be a, you'll be a walking billboard. Right. But, uh, well, good deal. Great show today, Jim. We appreciate all you do for the network. And at the very least, we're putting together a contingency of people that uh, are certainly being listened to by 67,074 countries. We're having good products brought to us, old-fashioned products that are about doing things the right way. So we're making some noise, uh, and we'll continue to push the envelope here on our end. And uh, appreciate uh, the information. You, you mentioned Jim Colonel here. He'll have his show again next week, um, certainly breaking down. I joke with him and our, I'll have to introduce you to Sal Marinello, our performance coach. The two of them are kindred spirits. And I tell them, excuse my language here when I say this, but I, t- I say, you know, those two guys ruin shit for me every week. I send, them, <laughs> I send them pictures of pictures and they come back. He's not good enough. I send Sal pictures of exercise. I'm thinking of doing this because I'm still running ultra marathons. And uh, nope, that's terrible to do. And I said, well, I've been doing this for five years now. You should have told yeah. me one. So they, they ruin a lot of stuff for me, but they're good guys and they, they keep us straight. But thanks again. And Hope you hope you can take that one extra step today, and we'll look out for you next week with your show, Cots Corner. But episode four fifty-five in the books right now, Cots Corner on the Real Voices of the Game. Thanks, Jim. Thank you, Dave. Got some baby. Get up and go outside. Don't let the old Many moons I have lived